You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to a special installment of City Lights Live, where we continue to celebrate our 70th anniversary with a special calendar of programming. I'm your host, Peter Maravellis, and this event is being brought to you in conjunction with Center for the Art of Translation and Two Lines Press. Our program is called Found in Translation, Adventures in Language. Before we begin, as is customary, I would like to remind everyone we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatishaloni peoples. We would like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. As many of you know, City Lights is a publisher as well as a bookstore. And though we are known as being the home to the Beat Generation, literature in translation has played an important role in our publishing division's mission. From its early inception, City Lights was conceived of as an international project. From the very beginning, with Lawrence Ferlinghetti's own translations of Jacques Prévert, leading to the present with some of the exciting authors City Lights publishes today, the world in translation has been at the core of the City Lights mission and something we value greatly. Over the years, we've published such authors as Luis Cernuda, Abdel Latif Labi, Tavio Paz, Fernando Pessoa, Alberto Ruiz Sanchez, amongst many others. More recently, we've had the pleasure of publishing the works of Gabriel Aleman, Asli Erdogan, Joyce Mansour, and Ebru Ojan. Tonight, we will be spending an evening with the editors and translators who have helped shape the translation program at City Lights. Joining us in discussion will be Elaine Katzenberger, the executive director of City Lights and the publisher of City Lights Books. Dick Cluster, a writer and translator who has brought us the work of Gabrielle Aleman through the books Poso Wells and Family Album. Also with us will be Emily Morehouse, who is a teacher, writer, translator, and environmentalist. She translated the collection Emerald Wounds by Joyce Mansour. Uh, we also have with us Mark Schaefer, a literary translator, visual artist, and senior lecturer at the University of uh, Massachusetts in Boston, where he teaches Spanish. City Lights recently published his translation of Berlin Gopagu's Stay This Day and Night with Me. Uh, moderating our panel this evening is none other than Olivia E. Sears, the board president and founder of Center for the Art of Translation. She is a translator of Italian poetry and prose, specializing in avant-garde women writers. She founded the Center for uh, the Art of Translation and the journal Two Lines, where she serves at for many years, uh, for 12 years, as its editor. So join us now in offering a warm welcome to all of our panelists. I will now turn over the helm to Olivia Sears, who will get the evening started. Welcome, everybody. I am so <laughs> delighted to be here. Um, this is, of course, one of my favorite uh, presses in the world. And um, and I couldn't be happier to be talking, of course, about their history of translation, which is truly astonishing. Um, and 70 years of it. So I wanted to start um, by asking Elaine about the kind of the origins of uh, translation at City Lights. As Peter said, it started with Lawrence's uh, translations of Prévert and so on. Um, but I'd just like to hear more about the kind of the overall arc of the translation program at City Lights and anything about your, you know, what has been the driving mission behind it and, and so on. So give us a little background on the, the City Lights program. Thanks. Um, yeah, 
Well, it does start with Lawrence, obviously. Uh, everything at City Light starts with Lawrence. Um, and, uh, and, and I do think it's important to talk about him a bit because it was his sort of own internationalism, his just sort of natural. I mean, it's part of who he was. He was, uh, as a child, he was taken uh, by his relatives to France and grew up speaking French first and came back to the United States. And so he was always a bilingual person, just naturally. But uh, he was also somebody who, as a reader, was always interested in other languages and started translating as a young man. And when he founded City Lights, it was very much a product of internationalism for him. You know, it was after he had um, been in the service during the Second World War and he had been through Europe and um, had been to Japan, actually, also, and had seen the world himself physically. Um, and had a real interest in an international project. I think he always thought of publishing as something that like the mission of it was um, something global about cultures communicating. And um, from the beginning, he was infusing his list with that. I mean, the second book he ever published was um, 20 Poems of Love and Exile or 30 Poems of Love and Exile. So they were like Spanish language poems translated by Kenneth. Rexroth. And, um, you know, he published his own translations of Prevere a couple of years later and just continued to do that, but also continued to travel. And part of what uh, resulted from his travels was always books, projects from other countries. So he would meet poets in other places and then end up with an armload of stuff. And, you know, um, translators would be approaching him. And I think, you know, that was the origin um, and it just continued to be the way that the editors who joined the project here would work. I mean, Nancy Peters was the next big influence on the trajectory here at City Lights, and she was here working alongside of Lawrence um, for 30 years. And so Nancy also was a world traveler herself and was quite cosmopolitan in her view of things. And I think <clears throat> never... Um, it was never a question that world literature would be part of what she would be interested in bringing into the list. And then each editor who came and was involved, I mean, there, you know, there haven't been that many of us, strangely, it's been 70 long years, but there haven't been that many. So, you know, because people tended to stay. And so Robert Sherrard was another one and same thing, you know, he was somebody who physically liked to travel and went to a great number of places and everywhere he went, it ended up influencing the kinds of things that he would bring and put on the list. And same with um, Amy Shoulder and me and um, and Garrett Caples too. So some of it does come from actual um, one's own personal connection to other places in the world, like you know what languages the editor might read themselves and what cultures they might have inroads into. Um, and some of it is also, I think, for quite a long time, there weren't that many translation presses out there. There are a lot of them now, as you know, um, and it's wonderful. I mean, in the last 20 or 30 years, I mean, it's just been this amazing flowering of small translation presses. And so there's a ton of things being translated now. But, you know, when I first started uh, working as an editor here in the early 90s, I feel like that was definitely not the case. And I think for much of City Lights' existence, it wasn't the case. So there was a handful of uh, presses that were publishing things in translation. Um, 
but not that many. And so part of being a press that does publish translation or an editor that is known for wanting to publish in translation means it comes to you. After a while, all the translators know where they're gonna try to pitch their work because there's somebody there who might be interested. So I think that was also part of it is that City Lights was here and people knew that this was a place that was interested in publishing world literature. So that projected us along the path too. But you know, before this meeting, I was looking at the list of all the books that we've published since the very beginning. And it's interesting to watch, you know, um, as the agglomeration happens in these periods when, you know, there might be three or four or all the editors are all bringing translations in. So sometimes it's a year where, you know, everything but one or two of the books we publish is a book in translation. Um, but there's always something, at least one or two every year from the beginning. And um, some years there's like seven or eight. So it's really, it's, it's, a, it's, I think part of that too is why what attracts um, translators and authors to our list too is because it's there are some really illustrious names among that group of people, and I think when a, a, the authors who are in other countries are also attracted to the project of City Lights, and so you know they grow up reading some of these books and are proud to have themselves associated with some of these other global authors and you know that that is part of the project too is putting these voices in conversation and and you know obviously any press has curatorial inclinations and um so some things that might be translated by another press might not fit here and and then of course there's poetry and fiction both going on here too so i should obviously mention that but um, I'm curious, you, you mentioned that there have been a, a small number of editors working there, and I'm curious if um, you, if each of the editors had kind of a, an area of focus that they were most interested in, um, or if there was a lot of overlap among them. And I'm also curious about whether you ever, from the, the publisher's perspective, I'm really curious about whether you ever had any explicit conversations about the kind of work you were looking for um, or discussions amongst yourselves about, you know, what you wish to find or different languages you wish to explore? I mean, definitely there were areas of interest that were specific to each person and then with some overlap, but for instance, and, and some of it was also because, like I say, it, it might be the language that one of the editors happens to read in themselves that isn't English. Or for a while, both Nancy and Lawrence were studying Italian and that opened mm -hmm. up this whole Italian world. Um, and it was really Nancy who published a lot of the Italian translations here. Lawrence was, you know, uh, French was something that he was naturally doing in the beginning and he was translating some himself. Um, for me, it was a lot of the Spanish language stuff, but I was particularly, in the beginning, I was particularly interested in Mexico. And, and, and again, at that time, when I was first starting, Mexican literature was not represented in translation. There was a not as much as some of the other areas. And it was people knew about the boom writers. And that's, and then there was like maybe Carlos Fuentes and Juan Rulfo. But the rest, what was happening in contemporary Mexican writing was there was nothing really or not much. And so that was kind of a big, wide open 
field to play in that I could see as a reader was, was, you know, something that I could easily walk into and tap into. Um, and because I spoke Spanish, I had friends in the publishing world in Mexico and could talk to them about what they thought was happening there. But in general, um, that has expanded. But I've also, you know, Turkey had became a certain, the thing is, once you start publishing in an area, again, like the translators who publish from that region start to look for you. So, so the general Middle East is a place that definitely I have also published from, but Robert Sherrard also definitely brought a lot of stuff from the Arab world. Um, and what maybe would be known as like Swana now, like North Africa and the greater Middle East, what would be called the greater Middle East now. Um, and then, you know, because he was traveling to Cuba for a little while, a bunch of Cuban stuff came on our list. And um, so it was, it was, you know, it's really kind of organic like that. Um, and then it also happens because translators speak to each other and, you know, I think they send somebody this way or whatever, you know, definitely. Um, I don't, you know, it's, it, we, we didn't have conversations about um, what's missing so much um, and let's go find it because sometimes I feel like there are gaps. There are definitely gaps in the map of the world on our list that have, have barely been touched or, or remain untouched. And some of that also, I think, is because I think, I can't speak for the others, but I'll say this for myself. If I don't feel like I have some ability to make a judgment call about, you know, who this, why is this author important? Where do they stand in the literature of their home language? What, you know, how can I judge the quality of this translation? Doesn't mean that I have to read the original, but there has to be inroads somehow. And people are usually gonna make the same case. Well, this is the most important writer ever published from blah, blah, you know, it's like you read the book jackets of translations, they all say, you know, and they all have won like some prize you've never heard of and, you know. So I think it's like, I think all of us were a little circumspect about like, well, you know, we need something from outer Mongolia, you know, so we're going to just get that because, you know, we need it. And it was more, it was always something much more um, grounded in the reality of the people who were working here, like personal connections and conversations that felt and do feel meaningful. Yeah. Well, I'd like to now hear from some of these uh, translators who found their way to you. Um, I'm going to start, I think, with Dick Cluster, um, who has published at least uh, two books by Gabriel Aleman with City Lights and um, really wonderful books. I highly recommend them. Um, I, I'm curious how you what you, what is your kind of city light story? How did you come to city lights? How did you learn about it? And how did you end up eventually getting published there? Um, and, and then I have even more questions, but let's start there. Okay, well, I think I first heard city lights in high school from some more uh, precocious somebody who, you know, kind of knew the beats and um, told me about city lights when I finally like first hit San Francisco for a little while in the summer of love. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I made the pilgrimage to North Beach and I bought 
my copy of of Pocket Poets, um, Howl and Other Poems. And then, I don't know, 30 years later, when I started getting interested in translation, Cola Franson, who was kind in Boston, who was kind of my translation mentor, invited me to co-translate with her the Cuban writer Antonio Jose Ponte. Uh, and she said, I think we can do it at City Life because Nancy Peters is sick to death of magical realism and she wants to publish some other kind of Latin American voice that's like spare and deceptively simple, kind of like, like Ponte. Um, and then somewhere in that same process, I met Ponte in Havana and he told me, he said, you know, every Cuban writer of a certain age once walked around with the pocket poet's copy of Howl in their back pocket. So that testifies to a kind of a full circle, um, consistent tradition. But I think it also testifies to how City Lights is so eclectic and always on the lookout for books to bring into English that are new or different or, or against the grain. Uh, Cola had translated the medieval poems of Arab Andalusia, for instance, um, for City Lights. Uh, so that was how I first got there, was through Cola. And then part of what my kind of mission was when I started doing translation um, after living in Cuba for some years was a desire to complicate Americans' vision of Cuba, of, of, of mm -hmm. Cuban reality, if I could be published there, uh, to get beyond the simplicities of kind of right, left, and center. And I thought the way to do that was through Cuban fiction writers um, who could present a fuller picture of the society. And Nancy and Bob Sherrard and Elaine, and I'm sure Lawrence behind them were always receptive to those proposals, or sometimes Bob found the writer and, and recruited me. Um, so that was great. You know, that, 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 that variety of Cuban voices that I was able to do um, through City Lights. And also as a reader, I started delving into the many other translations of City Lights published. And I just pulled this off my shelf. Um, Outcast by this is a book City Lights published in 2007, translated from the Hebrew by an Israeli, an Iraqi Israeli writer about a Jewish Iraqi who converts to Islam. And it's also a history of the Iraq we never see in our newspapers. Or I think about Gabriella's book, the first of Gabriella's books that I brought to City Lights to Elaine was Poso Wells, which I read on the airplane immediately after buying the book. And I thought, this is a fantastic book. Who in the United States would possibly publish a book that fits into no genre categories and mashes them up? So the answer to that was, was City Lights. So that's part of my story. Um, I'm going to read, and, and there's it's hard to read a representative sample, even from Gabriella, much less from those three writers. But here's the beginning of a story from the new book, Family Album. Um, if you all remember who Lorena Bobbitt was, um, famous for cutting off her husband's penis, um, this book is called Honeymoon. Right then I started, I mean, this story, right then I started picking up his stuff and throwing it at him. He could take his stories somewhere else, find some other breasts to comfort him. Lorena must have cut him for some pretty good reason, I was ready to bet. Once I found out he was famous and had a gig at the Faena Cabaret, all my sympathy went right out the window. He was just one more Yankee trying to take advantage of someone. <laughs> wow, that was... Fantastic. That it, mm -hmm. I can't wait to, to read Family Album. I've only read Poza Wells, um, but she is she's such a delight and um, a wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, 
I'm going to move now from from contemporary Ecuadorian writer to uh, the fabulous Joyce Mansour, uh, translated by Emily Morehouse. Um, this new book, Emerald Wounds. Um, so here we have a writer from the 50s who's a, an exile, Syrian Jew exile to Paris. Um, so quite a quite a different voice um, that we're hearing. How did you come to City Lights? And tell me a little bit about your relationship with the with the press and and the legend. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I think as as you say, I, I can't really remember the first time I ever heard about City Lights because it is kind of to me it's like a, a legend that's sort of um, you know this famous bookstore and publishers. Um, that you know it's like anybody who goes to visit san francisco it's like on the you know must visit uh bookstore so i i don't there's not a point in my mind where i was like oh i've i've discovered this it just sort of felt like something that i that's always i've always known about um and uh i only first time i ever visited uh san francisco in california was uh in 2017 um, so that was the first time that, and that's the only time actually that I've been uh, out to California. Um, so uh, obviously uh, visited the bookstore. Um, uh, so it's it's relatively recent for me that I've that I've set foot at City Lights, um, and also my relationship with City Lights is also re relatively recent because, or was it? Yeah, it was around that same time um, that I discovered Joyce Mossul. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as someone who was raised in a sort of a francophone household, I was uh, given a, a French from France education. Um, and here I am sort of doing um, a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing on the West Coast in Vancouver. And um, uh, it was around the time that the Me Too movement sort of um, went viral and I was looking for someone to translate. And I, you know, through my research, I was like, I really need to translate a woman with a very strong sort of non-conforming voice. Um, and Mansour is is the person I found for that purpose. Um, and so I started translating her for this course uh, and um, I, I would just sort of fell in love with her voice. I was like, wow, it's so unique. I was also a little bit angry like that I had you know never been exposed to her I'd never you know in my education because it was partly French um, that I had never even heard of her even though you know I knew about surrealism I knew about the surrealists but uh, Joyce Mansour was just never a, a name that I had ever come across um, and neither her poetry so um, for me I was really excited to discover her and uh, it went much further than than the workshop that I had enrolled in for translation. I just afterwards, I, I really enjoyed translating her work. So I kept doing it um, just out of kind of pleasure and interest in discovering going deeper into her work. Um, and so I ended up, uh, I ended up uh, publishing uh, some of her poems or, or uh, the translations of her poems, alongside an article about sort of my journey in discovering her. Um, and just uh, once that was published, uh, a few days later, I was contacted by Garrett Caples from City Lights, um, who was, yeah, who was very interested in my translations um, and had been looking, actually, or he felt like this was something that was 
um, uh, missing, uh, that we needed more uh, English translations of Joyce Mansour. There, there already uh, is, there, there's one in print um, by uh, Serge Gavronsky, um, but he sort of felt that we needed, uh, we needed more of that and that City Lights was really the place to do it. Uh, so for me, it was, it was really, um, it was just a very organic process of kind of, uh, you know, discovering Joyce Mansour and then, and then organically City Lights sort of, um, reading the article that I had written and my translations. And from there, I mean, it, it took a while to, to get the book out because, um, you know, there was uh, lockdown, COVID, and, and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, over several years, um, we uh, we worked on this book, and uh, it just came out in July. So, uh, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Would you read a, a little, um, sure. maybe a short poem from Mansoor? Of course, yeah. Uh, okay, so this one, uh, so uh, her very early poems, published in uh, 19, this one is 1956, they're very short, so, <laughs> um, but they're untitled, so I'll just read the first line as, as the title. Um, I am the night. I am the night, this night of space frozen by the cold idiocy of the moon. I am money, money that makes money without knowing why. I am man. Man who pulls the trigger and shoots emotion to live better. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. <laughs> um, okay, so now I think we'll go to uh, Mark Schaefer, who has been translating um, has been translating many things for many many years. Um, but tonight we'll be talking about Belen Gopigui. Um, and the most recent book is Stay This Day and Night With Me, but you've published another one, uh, the um, Scale maps of Maps. And scale, scale of Maps, of thank maps. you. I, I, I don't have it in front of me. Um, it's up on my shelf. <laughs> and so this is a, this is a writer who, who emerged in the early 90s. Um, can you tell us how you came to this writer and how you came to City Lights and, oh, very nice, very nice. And your journey with City Lights. Sure, thank you, Olivia. It's such an honor to be here. Um, uh, it, and as Dick was talking, I realized, wait a minute, there's another book I, I translated things for and I realized I've translated three books for City Lights and, and are in two anthologies. And it, it's just such a wonderful thing. I'll, I'll, the short story about how I got to City Lights was I had, out of college, started translating a Cuban author, Virgilio Piñera, um, uh, one of the most important writers of the country, as all of our writers are. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I got uh, my first book published and then a second one sort of on the heels of that by the same publisher. And then I, I had sort of started my career. Now I was a published translator, but where, where could it go? What would happen? I found, I was living in Mexico and I read, um, I read a book by a young author, Alberto Ruiz Sanchez, oops, 
and um again a book that does you know not quite it's it's prose it's poetry it's myth it's all kinds of things not a typical mexican author at all or or what would you would think of as sort of um a lot of mexican references and uh and i I probably sent it around to 20 places or so and and city lights nancy peters said yes and um i the the thing one thing that i think is really makes city lights stand out is that um it was founded by a writer it was founded by a writer and and the one difference that I feel with with City Lights is that that the people I've dealt with are all readers. Like they're not just publishers; they're actually readers. Mm-hmm. And when, and uh, I I shopped around the uh, the scale of maps by Belengo Peggy, and Elaine took it in two thousand ten or I think. And um, and then a few years ago, she came back to me and she said, I, I'd like to publish another book of hers. And it's not, Abelin is well-known and important in Spain, but it's it's not like she's an international superstar. But Elaine uh, 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 was, was reading her and wanted to read more. And it's just such mm-hmm. a different approach. And the other aspect I'll say is that um, so many of the authors that I've translated particularly in Mexico, deeply admire City Lights. Yeah. And um, like like Dick was saying, and I think one difference that City Lights has in this sort of subtle but powerful way is that City Light, like many publishers who are uh, publishing translations, as Elaine mentioned, there's so many small presses and medium ones now that are doing that, are really... Um, in relation to U.S. readers, which is fantastic. Mm. But there's a feeling I have that City Lights is in relation to the world. It's Mm -hmm. in relation to world literature, to world writers, to world publishers, not the only one, but there's a way in which the presence, however small the actual place is, has where... um, it goes both ways that I go back to uh, David Huerta, whom I translated, not published by City Lights, but he wanted to come. He certainly wanted to come to the bookstore and to meet Elaine, to Alberto Blanco, that I translated some for an anthology. Like so many people um, uh, of the authors I've worked with um, feel like City Lights is part of their literary world. And that mm-hmm. is like a double honor to be part of. Yeah, if I can just two quick things about that. When I told um, Gabriella I was submitting her book to City Lights, she said, City Lights, I'm not going to sleep tonight. And Milena Fernandez, <laughs> um, another Cuban writer, uh, has been published since then a lot in Italy. And she said one of the reasons for that is La Editorial de Ferlinghetti, you know, that she was published by La Editorial de Ferlinghetti, put her on the map in Italy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Mark, would you read a little bit from the from the new book? Sure. Stay this day and night with me. 
stay this day and night with me and and um uh okay uh so the book the conceit of the book although conceit is sort of a cheap word for what Belen does um is that it's a letter it's an, a job application written by this young lower class um lower middle class man um and this a uh, 60 year old uh middle class woman um both sort of struggling with with class and corporate life in in Spain and they send this job application to Google and it's being it's being reviewed by someone or something and this person or being says I've uh I've been told to apply common sense as I carry out my duties which is to say I presume certain things to be expectable unless otherwise indicated a classic example when a bird is mentioned I assume it can fly Initially, I don't consider the possibility that the bird might be a penguin. Someone asked me to design a bird cage. I will design a cage with a roof because I assume the bird can fly. I also assume that they can tell me what they should they want me to save on materials and forego the roof so that as the bird in question is a penguin and can't fly. I've been encouraged <laughs> uh, just a few more. So so-called common sense relies on what people expect. I've been encouraged to follow this in most cases. So if I receive an application for a position, I expect it to indicate the position it is for. Mateo and Olga don't indicate this. And they don't follow this thing. They don't follow that thing. I ask myself, are Mateo and Olga penguins? Then I decide to accept <laughs> the application because Google needs penguins. <laughs> <laughs> So we can add to the to the kind of editorial view, strong non-conforming voices and also plenty of humor. Um, I would like to open it up to uh, questions from the audience. And while we wait for those questions to accumulate, I'd like to ask um, Elaine, you, you said that, uh, you know, translators learned that they that that City Lights was a friendly place to bring their translations and so that you know you you don't have to do much um advertising or or promoting to get people to send work in do you also have international writers contacting you and saying find me a translator or i'd love to publish with you how do how do i go about it do you have do you have authors re reaching out to you directly once in a while but not nearly as much as translators i think um hmm. Yeah, I don't know about you, but uh, no, that's that that is much more rare. Um, sometimes they're yeah. in sometimes they're in cahoots with a translator, so they'll come as a you know they'll sort of come with a translator, you know, sort of translating their approach. Um, one of the other things yeah. I did want to say though that I didn't say when in my first sort of introduction or when I was answering questions and and it's been brought up by each one of these translators and I appreciate it is something about like the viewpoint and like yeah. if if when we do have discussions about what are we going to choose um, or when I think about what are we going to put on the list you know it does have to do with um, what else is out there and what's missing so mm -hmm. you know uh dick mentioned something about you know nancy's sick of this magical realism i for me when i was looking at mexican fiction at first i was like okay 
there's this standard idea of what is classic Mexican fiction. And I know that there's all this other stuff going on in Mexico, and I'm interested in publishing that so that people have a different viewpoint of this, you know, incredibly interesting modern cosmopolitan place. And so I think that there, and, and also this sort of idea that things can fall in, into the cracks genre wise here. I mean, it's something that we consistently do. And it, it is difficult as a publisher to publish things that aren't easily described or easily packaged into a niche thing, because, you know, that's what the marketplace sort of, that's how it works. So, you know, even where do you put it in the bookstore when somebody puts it in their, on their shelves and, you know, it's a lot harder to describe certain projects. And, but I think obviously they're much more exciting. And, and for us, you know, we're, we're in conversation with, a different level of cultural production than big, huge corporate publishing and the kinds of translations that come out of those houses, some of which are incredibly exciting and interesting, most of which actually a lot of it. But, you know, and then those can get pushed in front of people and then trends are created, you know, like somebody gets popular and then suddenly the world is flooded with this, you know, and everybody, they all look the yeah. same and the covers are all the same and you're just like, what is this? But you know, and so that's where, like, we're just standing there going, like, okay, not us. What are we doing? You know, what's different about this? Why is this important that we do this here? And I think that that's the right. biggest curatorial part about it. Yeah. So, so looking back over the history of translation of translated titles at at City Lights, do you feel like you can see a kind of shape? to things or um, something that, a, a commonality that that all of these books have, or, or I don't know, some general themes, you know, if you, if as a press, you weren't from the beginning saying, we want to publish, you know, uh, only speculative fiction from the Asian world or something. Mm -hmm. If you were, you know, being open to everything, when you look at the list, does, are there things that just say to you, this is a City Lights book? Well, I mean, the most obvious thing would be uh, where politics intersects with literature and, you know, a, a radical lefty view of culture, class, you know, race, whatever, um, is definitely part of a through line. And it goes, you know, poetry, fiction, it doesn't matter. It's not like every book is overtly that, but many of them are. And many of the characters are like uh, Pasolini is a good example or, you know, so who these people were in their own culture as avant-garde, you know, mm -hmm. radicals. Uh, Joyce Mansour is another good example. So sometimes it has, and, and sometimes it does have to do with their own kind of like avant-garde uh barrier breaking with the work they do too if they're approaching taboo subjects within their cultural production like Ebru Ojan is a good example of something recent where she's from Turkey it's still an intensely patriarchal society much more so recently than ever and she's you know going up against the patriarchal state in a in a much in an oblique but very direct at the same time way and taking a lot of risks um so I, I I think that those things are important, and I do think that that's a through line through. Not every book is really radical, but 
a lot of them are. And the other thing that is has always infused the City Lights list where I think Menser obviously fits in is uh, surrealism. So that's something that yeah. the editors at City Lights have always been interested in from the beginning. And that has to do with who worked here. And, you know, Nancy Peters herself mm -hmm. was a surrealist poet. So and her, you know, mm. her former husband was a famous surrealist poet. So all of, you know, there's a certain like nexus of writing that happens around those authors themselves too. So those are two things that I would point to. Um, I'm curious, the translators, um, I'd like to turn back to you. When you look back at your own production, um, and some of you have longer uh, list behind them than others. Um, do you, I mean, maybe you s started out as a translator with a mission and had a plan of, you know, what you felt needed to be translated or what kinds of writers you were looking for. Do you, looking back at what you have translated, do you find, um, do you feel like you've had a mission? And, and I'd lo love to know how since we're talking about strong non-conforming voices and we're talking about politics and such, how City Lights has fit into your feeling of, if you have a feeling of a mission as a translator, I think most most translators do. Dick, do you wanna do you wanna jump? Well, on I that? mentioned starting out with that mission about about presenting Cuban voices, Cuban and and complicating. Yeah. Um, um, views of Cuba. Here I can hold up one more Cuban one because it's such a pretty and provocative cover. This mm. is uh, this Beautiful. is Bridget Tales Pedro de Jesus. Um, so you know, uh, uh, one of the first out gay Cuban writers to be published as such in Cuba when that became possible in the '90s. Another facet people didn't know about. Um, so definitely that one. But after that, I feel like. No, you know, I would stumble on stuff. So like Bosa Wells at actually at the Havana Book Fair, but it was from Ecuador. Um, uh, Melanie Fernandez novel is about Havana. And I met her through mm -hmm. translating a different anthology of Cuban writers. So one thing would lead to another, both with City Lights and, um, and, and translations I've done outside City Lights. So I feel like the answer is I started mm -hmm. with the mission and then one thing started to lead to another. Yeah, yeah. Mark, do you have a do you have a sense of that? Boy, a mission sounds so wonderful. Um, <laughs> I, well, sometimes uh, it's only in retrospect. You know, I you think, look back and you say, "Oh, now I know what my mission was." <laughs> yeah, I think to be honest, my mission when sometimes I describe what I do is that particularly I, I translate fiction and poetry, but both. But when describing poetry, I say, I tell people I write other people's poetry. And um, and it I think my mission is is getting a chance to like get my fingers and everything else into the into writing I love. And that has proved to be quite a wide range of things. I think one common aspect is that all of the writers I've translated are are thinking about and playing with language itself as well as mm. or 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 fiction. You know, in the case of Berlin, um, 
uh, as well as the content that they might be writing about. So um, uh, mm. it's been, yeah, it's it's been very eclectic and the ways I come to things have been very different from reading reviews to someone approaching me to a few cases with publishers and um, bumping into people. And um, so I, I think it's a, for me, it's a great mission because like, it's always, I mean, I've had the luxury, I haven't been living on it, which is part of what makes it a luxury of getting to translate <laughs> all these different writers and texts that I really love and enjoy and am fascinated by yeah yeah um well that's i mean i i think that is you know the way that most most translators go about it um so maybe i'm, I'm, in a, the, I'm a writer in search of a writer or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um so and now Emily you you said that you were specifically looking for a woman with a strong voice during the the me too times um are you now working on are you continuing to work on Mansoor or are you, have you been looking for other writers are you still on that same uh so, project mission I mean I think it's I think it's a really good question because when I initially started off before the me too it was like you know when I was first looking for something to translate I was a, a translator without a mission and I felt very lost and mm -hmm. and the me too movement really sort of galvanized that and like really directed my search and I knew what I needed to do and I found I found Mansoor and um, and you know, it was someone whose voice needed to be elevated, um, because she's even in France, you know, unlike, you know, I didn't sell her as like, she's won all these awards cause I couldn't because she's been ignored. Um, and, uh, and so I really, when I discovered her, I was like, this person needs to be, her voice needs to be heard much more widely. And if France doesn't want to do it, I'm sure, uh, you know, like, the first of all, the, the North America is interested, uh, more interested, and, and City Lights to me was just a, a perfect fit. Um, so in terms of like moving forward, I like it. So it's interesting for me because I, this was this is my first um, work of published work of translation. Um, so I'm just sort of uh, uh, discovering, you know, like this this was a mission. Um, you know, am I going to continue with her? You know, I, I love translating her, so possibly. Um, but it, it's interesting to hear that, you know, for uh, for Dick and Mark, they maybe they're stumbling like, like they're they had a mission and then they're sort of kind of stumbling on works so that are maybe coming to them or that they're discovering organically. Um, so I think for me, I'm still kind of discovering that process um, of what is it? What is it that comes next for me? I'm kind of in that that uh, still figuring that out, I guess I'll say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. We look forward to seeing what you do next. Um, and speaking of which, I'm wondering if um, Elaine, there is a, a question here asking if you could tell us something about some forthcoming translations that we can look forward to from City Lights. If you have any that are percolating that you that you're at liberty to speak of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, probably f at 
I can you know five or eight that are sort of percolating, but what actually ends up happening, I mean, as you know, and as the translators know, like uh, funding is a big part of what gets translated and it falls onto the presses and onto the translators themselves, you know, to figure that out. And it's difficult. So it can, it can limit, at, at least in a case like ours, where we don't have deep pockets to fund these things. And so it's also why some countries are heavily translated because there's grants that are available from those countries. And, you know, that skews the view of the world and, you know, that people have and blah, blah, blah. So, um, so sometimes that plays a role in what I end up being able to do. Um, but I do know that we are going to publish a, uh, a book by Andre Breton that hasn't been previously published oh. in English. And it's called, uh, oh. in French, it's Perspective Cavalier. And uh, so that's coming in a year or two. It's, a, it's being translated now. And, um, and by another young translator at the beginning of their career which is that's also exciting for us you know being able mm -hmm. to help a translator get started because you know once you're published by a reputable house then you have some calling card wherever you want to go and it makes a big difference so it's exciting when that can happen um yeah and then there's an algerian a novel that I'm looking at that I'm hoping that we're going to do. And I'm working with those translators to try to scare up some money so that they can be paid. But, you know, I, I hope that we can do it. <laughs> it's a really interesting. Yeah. Novel. Yeah. So those are the two that are. Oh, wonderful. Horizon. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Well, um, we look forward to hearing more about those um, in the future. I'm going to turn now to questions in the chat. Um, so here's an interesting one. Um, the the uh, questioner asks, how do translators in general feel about advanced AI software doing a better job at translating than ever before? Um, I I'm I actually want to go first to Elaine because I know you did an AI conference week recently, didn't you? At City Lights? I did not. Kind of, Peter uh, was well, the one yes. who put that together and moderated a lot of it and yeah. You know, I guess what I would say about that is, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what the translators would say. But for me, you know, when I publish work in translation and every work that is published in translation here is a process of, you know, you get a manuscript from somebody who's worked for a long time laboring over the uh, nuances of every word and every phrase and nothing is literal, you know, especially in creative writing. I mean, and then it comes to me or any of the other editors here and we poke at it too. I'm like, well, what about this? And what about that? And is this what they mean? And, you know, this doesn't mm -hmm. sound very elegant and whatever. So like, it is a craft that could never never, never be equaled by a machine. A machine can certainly um, translate and there, it's really helpful. I mean, I just had, you know, some document that I had to read that was, you know, contractual or whatever. And I didn't have to ask them to send it in English. I could do use the translating thing and it was close enough. So I think that on a workmanlike level for certain levels of things, but for literary translation or, uh, you know, I don't think there's any threat 
at all from that technology. I don't think they'll ever be able to build that kind of thinking in because there aren't patterns to it. You know, they're just, when people choose, when writers choose words that have different valences and the translator knows that and needs to choose a word that has that many valences as close as you can get and plus maybe sounds like it so rhythmically i mean it's just way too many choices involved that a machine isn't going to be able to program be programmed to mm -hmm. make so that's my view on things does any yes mark yeah. um i'm very curious to hear what they can Emily have to say, um, I'm gonna just stick my head out, my neck out. Um, uh, I, I'm, I think, a, a, a very much a, a luddite in in this regard, and I, and I have to say, like, I can't believe that we're even doing this. Like, why, why would people ever come up with this idea of like artificial intelligence? I, it just really baffles me. <laughs> Um, and when, um, I, I, I wrote a short essay, um, called, called literary translation is creative writing. And, mm. uh, and it talks about what, what Elaine was saying and she, she knows it intimately. And I know cause she has, I've worked with her in that way. And, and, um, and I, what I did was I, I um, it actually was in the context of having just gone to Mexico, being at a homage to David Huerta, one of the poets I've translated, and and being um, being welcomed by this circle of writers around him as a fellow writer, and mm -hmm. um, and that experience, which was really a unique experience for me, to be seen fully as a as a translator to be seen fully as a writer it it allowed me to start thinking about what i do in a way in a non-defensive way and just like the enormous number of filters and levels and um reference context of reference and um you know my my relationship with english my relationship with spanish my relationship of relating english and spanish and etc cetera, etc cetera, all of which come to play when i'm trying to figure out do i use this word or that word and that liter <laughs> literally it's it's like you know billions of of possibilities when you have you know 10 different levels and filters that are you know overlapping and intersecting as you're trying to figure out which word to pick um so i'm sure ai can do and will do amazing things and a i think is ridiculous and <laughs> e, um i think there is something that it just can't uh ai what ai can't do is have actual experience and that that is central to what we do as translators is our experience connecting to other people's actual human experience in language well said well said <laughs> do either of you want to chime in on this uh topic dick or emily what's nice about talking about ai is that it actually gets at what is the craft 
I mean, we have to talk about what the craft is in order to say that AI can't do it. So it's a, it's it's a very uh, delicious yeah, I mean, topic. I, I can also I can speak to a little bit of my experience. Like I've had to look into it a little bit more just because I'm a teacher, and so um, you know, obviously it's 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 uh, as a teacher we're starting to get things submitted that have been written by AI, and so uh, so then then I've discovered now that there's you know um, now sort of applications that are being used to humanize what has been written by AI. And it's just kind of like, we're, I mean, <laughs> like, okay, well, why don't you just write it, right? So it's it's turning into this kind of crazy cycle of like, we're gonna have like five different applications where it's like the robot writes it, but then it, it can't be detected by another robot and it has then has to be <laughs> something else to be humanized. and. It's just like, you know, I think that the fact that they are they need to sort of develop these additional tools, I mean, it's it's telling us that they can't do the job of a human. Um, mm -hmm. And and uh, yeah, so I think, you know, I think Mark said it very well. You know, it's it's um, it's creative. We are as humans, we are creating something new, which robots, which AI cannot do at this point. Still, they're just still imitating. Um, you know, I don't know what it'll what it'll look like in the future, but right now it's just kind of bad imitation. Uh, uh, in terms of what it says about the craft, I haven't delved into it. I know that if I started playing with ChatGPT or whatever, I'd go down a rabbit hole and come out about three weeks later with the results <laughs> of my experiment, and I've done nothing in between, so I haven't done it. But I think about one, like I'm thinking about. A monologue by the Dominican poet uh, Alexis uh, Gomez Roja that I translate Rosa that I translated, which was about baseball and Dominican slang and everything needed um, some sort of U.S. equivalent that was a different metaphor and a different slang, but it had to sound sort of like it. It strikes me that the notion of looking at a vast number of texts and seeing what's likely to be like that would be very hard to do that particular kind of thing. But I don't know. That's I, a really just, interesting example. Yeah, go ahead. Go can ahead. I just add one thing that, that Emily was the, the app? I Oh, that I got to think about that. That's wonderful. Um, I think one of the things that technology we or maybe the thing we use technology for is to make what we do easier and more efficient and I think when it comes to writing, like, again, I hate to say ridiculous so often, but I think like that's ridiculous. Writing is not about easy and efficient. It's sort of about the opposite. It's about the messiness and particularity of of life, of human experience. And um, and one of the things that I think every translator, every literary translator experience shares is you can't figure out how to translate something and you're thinking about it and you're thinking oh, about yeah. it and you're you're trying to figure it out and you're trying different words and you're talking to people or you're waking up in the middle of the night or whatever <laughs> and it's the work it's the it's mm -hmm. that it's hard and you have to work and think and try so much that makes that turns it from a mechanical process or it's one moment where the mechanical process becomes a creative process. 
and where you're doing what you what writers do and um and you know no machine is ever going to get frustrated and have to try something else and i think that's key <laughs> to what we do i think that that is a perfect place to end because it is exactly what a writer does which is to get frustrated that's kind of what writing and translating is is to try something get frustrated and try something else and um and since city lights is truly you know a press that was founded by a writer i think that's just perfect um i'm curious if um anyone has any last uh any comments you want to say, things that you feel weren't said about City Lights, final questions before we close for the evening? I just want to highlight the, the um, what keeps coming up as a theme and, but maybe we haven't said it so directly is that, you know, this is all based on relationships and, um, and intentional relationships and building relationships. And so the idea of translation itself is like, we want relationships with other cultures and other writers who I, you know, we want to understand something. We want more people to understand something. And then there's like, you bring it down to, we have relationships between publishers and, or editors and translators. And then you bring it down to like some editors have, relationships with a world of authors and then translation translators have a, their relationships with worlds of authors and then those start to coalesce. And so they're really, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's all built on that, you know, and there's something, I guess, to echo what Mark said, you know, it's something very human and it is about that basic connection that humans want to make with each other. And that's the whole purpose of translating. You know, it's the purpose of speaking, it's the purpose of writing, it's, you know, it's about communicating with each other. And there's something really, um, it's the thing I am most interested in publishing. And I, you know, it's hard because um, it's probably one of the harder things to actually do successfully, you know, as much as you might publish in translation, how many readers are out there who are curious and want to read in translation, it's a subset of readers in general. And so, you know, and then how do you make the case for this person who like, you know, like I said, like the greatest writer Peru has ever produced and, you know, who knows? <laughs> and so how do you get attention for these people whose names don't necessarily resonate with a reader who's looking and, you know, all of that is not, not an easy project, but it's really a labor of love for everybody. You know, there's something really, mm -hmm. I think, exalted about it on some level. I really, I love it. It's the best thing. Can I ask you, Elaine, how long have you been at City Lights? I know Peter said 30, 32 years, I think. No, it's more than that. <laughs> I mean, that's how long Pe that's how long Peter's been there. Yes. Yeah, and, no, and he yeah, said I've Paul beat here, him out by I've been here thirty-six years. Yeah. Been here since wow. nineteen eighty seven. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Nice long so you time. started Well you and started I have the benefit of right? I did. I did. And, um, and City Lights has, you know, great translation in the bookstore. 
So as a, as a reader, you know, it's a, it's a, that's always been a mission of the, we didn't even talk about that aspect of city lights, but that's always been a part of the bookstore too. Very, very important part of what we do always. So, you know, and, and intentionally breaking out translation from the rest of world literature and putting that on special shelves to highlight it, highlight it and highlight the relationship of regional, you know, countries and it's that's a part of how we present things too and um but so as a bookseller i mean i had already read a good deal of of work in translation by that time i've always been a reader but like it was just like a kid in the i mean literally a kid in a candy shop (laughs) you know (laughs) so that was wonderful to be doing that and and then to be welcomed into the world of you know being able to be an editor of translations and start acquiring things it's been great and working with you know lawrence was here doing his thing you know when i was here so and nancy too and you know and bobby and amy and these people mentored me into my world so um it was and, you know, an understanding also what happens when a publisher, I mean, Lawrence himself, obviously, like, I'm not Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I don't have that kind of, um, I'm not a world beloved publisher and, and, and poet. But, you know, when you publish from the world, the world comes to you. And so the whole time <laughs> I have been here, these authors come to visit. Or delegations yeah. from other countries come and want to say hello and talk. And I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, before COVID, there was a, a bunch of Egyptian publishers and they wanted to say hello. And then we talked and talked about the history of translation here. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, you guys published Albert Kosary and this is so important for us and blah, blah. And then <laughs> when you did this writer, that's why we translated it. And that's the other thing you realize when you bring some work into English, it actually yes. oftentimes is how an, an author enters other languages, you know, because then a lot more people might read English than their native language. So you're also doing that for the writing. And, you know, that was wonderful to hear. So, so, you know, being here all those years was just kind of witnessing how that kind of, you know, web of connections actually, you know, feeds out and feeds back in, which is really very enriching for the press and and personally too so and yeah. carrying that on to new generation i mean the thing that you do that's wonderful yeah. is when you bring your all your bookselling staff upstairs to meet authors and hear about what these books are i'd never seen that happen anywhere else maybe it does but mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and that and that connection between i mean the city lights as a as a physical location where people can find the world in in books um that that obviously brings so much soul to the publishing house as well that you're all in the same space and creating this you know incredible space and and mood and soul of um literature so we thank you for all of your hard work. I first walked into City Lights in 1987. So I probably, you probably served me when I asked for a poetry (laughs) journal. Where are the poetry journals? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Anyway, it it is, it, it is so exciting that you guys are still fighting the good fight after 70 years. And I am delighted that, um, 
that you put this together and invited me to be on it. I'm, I'm privileged. And um, thank you all to um, all of the panelists as well. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Back Olivia. Yeah, I, I guess you could really describe it as being kind of like literary diplomacy. Um, <laughs> like when I think of City Lights translating, that's that's kind of what I think. Uh, Olivia, thank you so much for doing the honors tonight. And, and and special thanks to our esteemed colleagues, Emily, Elaine, Dick, Mark, ever grateful to you all. It was really important for the story of City Lights relationship to translation to be heard and really help. Thank you for helping with that task. But please come down, visit us. We're open seven days a week uh, from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and our educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So goodbye, everyone. Take care. I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.